Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast where we talk with software developers from around the world about the Elixir language and other modern web technologies. My name is Justice Eapen, and I'm your host today. I'm a developer at Smart Logic, a Baltimore-based consulting company that has been building custom web and mobile software applications since 2005. From the Smart Logic team today, I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Eric Ostrich. Hello. And we have a very special guest host today, our good friend from the Elixir world, Todd Resedek. Hi, gentlemen. Todd, it's so glad to have you back on the show. You're a recurring guest, and today you are helping us host this very special episode. The theme of this season of Elixir Wizards is working with Elixir. So we've been talking to guests about performance, functional programming, hiring and training in Elixir, uh, lots of different topics just all around working with Elixir in real life. And today we've got a very special guest, very well known in the Elixir community, Eric Meadows Johnson from Brex. How are you, Eric? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Eric, we're really glad to have you on. You're really well-known in the community, someone who's really contributed a lot to uh, different open source projects. And you know, if you could just maybe introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your background, the company that you work at, and how you got started with Elixir. Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, I work at Bricks. My background has really been a lot of functional programming. I got started with Elixir Fairly early in its development, I think either late 2012 or early 2013. And I really got started working with the language through the library Ecto, which you probably heard of. So during the summer 2013, during a project similar to Google Summer of Code, uh, I started working on uh, Ecto with uh, Jose as my mentor for that. And that's really how I got involved with the language and with the core of Elixir. So when, when you got started on this, working on Ecto, and Jose was sort of mentoring you along the way, how long had you been programming for? Oh, that's a good question. I've been programming for definitely a few years before that. I, haven't, I hadn't done a lot of functional programming before that. I got started with functional programming a few years before Elixir, I think. But I, I probably, uh, I only had a hobby experience from programming. Uh, and I was at the university at that time. So really not that much. That's interesting. I didn't realize that Ecto came out of a uh, Google Summer of Code project. Yes, it wasn't exactly Google Summer of Code. So the plan was for it to be Google Summer of Code. Unfortunately, if I remember the story correctly, the project, like the Beam Community Project, I think it's called, only got one slot that year. And that slot got to someone else, but were a few other, a few other companies that wanted a database library like that. So they sponsored basically the equivalent of Google Summer of Code, and basically we roughly went through the same process. I guess if we zoom forward a bit in in the timeline of of you, so I think recently I heard so you just started working at Brex pretty recently, and I think you were hired to to work on a a type system for Elixir. Um, how's that going? So not necessarily a type system. What I'm doing is I'm working on adding basically static compile time checks uh, to the compiler, which is not necessarily a type system. What we might end up with uh, might be similar to a type system or actually a type system, but we might end up with something completely, completely different. So as an example, we have a few compile time checks in the language right now, for example, uh, you get warnings if you call functions that are not defined. When you use the struct syntax, when you create structs, 
uh, update structs and so on, we check that uh, the fields that you're updating actually exist on the struct. So basically what we want to do is add more checks like that. It might end up with that the best way of adding checks like that might be something similar to type system. Uh, we don't know yet. Right now, we're mostly laying the foundations. We are doing a lot of research on the best way of doing this. It's pretty much in the early stages right now, but it's going well. 1.10, the release coming up now, we'll have some of the foundations for that, not a lot of more checks added. We refactored some of the deprecation checks that we have, those warnings, the undefined checks, we moved out those out from mix and into the compiler so we can do those checks in more places. For example, if you call undefined functions in your test code, you will get warnings in 1.10 that you didn't get in 1.9. But that's really the only thing that we have put into, into the stable version so far, but uh, I think you will see more in one point, the next versions. So this sounds like this is happening at compile time, or at least when the Elixir code is compiling into the bytecode. Yes. Is there any objectives to move this into the, the Beam uh, compiler directly or parts of it? So we've been thinking about stuff like that. So for example, the Erlang compiler already does some type inference during compilation. Uh, I think only for optimization and I'm not sure, but maybe dialyzer and hypos uses that type information. So we've been looking at if we can use the same inference to get more type information and to do more console checks, but we haven't used that yet. And we're not sure if we can use it. So right now the shakes that we do happen in Elixir and in Elixir only, and we don't really pass that information down to the underlying compilation passes. And I would say it's probably too early right now to really look at those kinds of things, but we didn't start in that end. So no, right now there are no plans basically because we haven't gotten that far yet. All right. Well, it sounds like it's going pretty well so far. You've been working on it for, I think, since February or so? Yeah, early this year, uh, springtime this year, I think, yeah. So how's your Erlang? Um, I know Jose mentioned at the keynote this year that he was uh, his future looked like it was going to be working deeper into this, the Beam stack, and which I assume means more and more Erlang. And I guess I um, the project we work on most often together is Hex, and uh, the person I see making the most confident Erlang contributions there is uh, Wojtek, or at least is among the maintainers. How is your Erlang, I guess? And are you planning on getting better at that? I've been decent at Erlang for a while, at least. I actually knew Erlang before I knew Elixir, but then kind of forgot a lot. <laughs> I had to pick up some more, kind of get more into it as I've been working on moving stuff around in the Elixir compiler. Some of the deep internals are in Erlang. Which this is a great segue because you mentioned Hex. And I think actually part of the way that we got you on the show here, Eric, was I guess over the summer, I was working on a Hex package for one of our clients and I discovered that the CLI timeout configuration feature uh, seemed to be performing a no-op. And I sort of just complained about it in the Elixir Lang Slack and you reached out and fixed it in like 20 minutes. Like what happened there? What was wrong with Hex? How did you get started with Hex? Tell us the story with Hex. And also, you know, just why are you so helpful? <laughs> so I usually try to hang around the Slack and IRC channels because that's the 
best way of knowing if there are issues with your libraries or the services that we run. So I usually try to hang around there and try to answer questions that uh, I can answer, or if there's bugs in my libraries, I of course try to fix them. So in this particular case, uh, this was a few months ago, I think. It was a really silly bug. Uh, we had we do a, a bit of parsing or checking of the input values as we start up hex and the hex timeout or the HTTP timeout configuration is one of those. And we were basically just parsing that incorrectly so that we, even when the timeout configuration was passed, we didn't actually use it. So it was easy and quick fix, uh, fortunately. Fortunately for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, fortunately for us all, I think. Uh, and how it started with hex. So hex started out as a registry for Elixir GitHub packages, if I remember correctly. And this was a bit after I worked on Ecto. I don't think I was on the Elixir team at this point, but uh, as I started working on Hex, uh, I got a lot of help from Jose, of course, uh, since we worked together in one way or another on most of these projects. I think, uh, I mean, uh, Hex started before Elixir 1.0 and just very, humbly the problem that we had was that everyone depended on the like everyone used uh, like when you declare a mixed dependency they used like a JIT or the GitHub and the problem we had was that everyone depended on the master branch uh, at that time as well there was a lot of changes in the language so some breaking changes and a lot of warnings and stuff like that and when Elixir was updated and you tried to update your project uh, to the new version there was a lot of hassle trying to make sure that you're dependencies were working uh, with the new version. Yeah, so the first version of Hex was just adding an index for the JIT packages, basically, or for the JIT repositories. And, and from that, it grew into something way more ambitious than it should have, maybe. <laughs> it worked into its into its own package tarballs and its uh, own registry and stuff like that from that. So how did Hex get its name, by the way? It doesn't have an obvious tie to uh, Elixir or, or anything elixir -y. Yeah, so the name is, well, it's sort of elixir right? It's it's Hex, right? Which is into like the whole magic thing that Elixir, for better or worse, uh, has Wizard a group on it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, 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 I, and I think Hex is sort of in that vein. And, and the person that named it is called Devin, who's the author of the Pool Boy project. And I think he also named the Ecto, the Ecto project as well. So he came up with a lot of good names. And Todd, you've got some experience on Hex. I'm curious if from your experience working on Hex, you have any sort of insight into sort of Eric's habits and um, product or... A little bit. So first of all, Eric is a, a great mentor or has been a great mentor for me. And, and I think I speak for Wojtek as well, as we're trying to contribute to, to Hex and all of the, the libraries that go along with it. I appreciate the fact that Eric seems not to sleep very much because he's available during U.S. working hours as well as like U.S. after hours. And so I'm not sure exactly when, when we overlap on sleep, but apparently he's, he's not, a very, not a very sleep conscious person on that as well. And, uh, but yeah, just uh, very, been a very positive and very helpful, very easygoing maintainer. So I, I would say like a lot of people in the Elixir community, the, the anti Linus. So very smart, but also very, very nice people. 
And since you're both here, does Hex as a project have a direction for the future that you could maybe share with us and also, you know, requirements as far as help? Hex is in a, uh, in a pretty good place right now. For me, I, I was really excited about uh, a year or two ago, we launched the uh, private packages, uh, which I was very happy for because I didn't have to pay for Hex myself anymore, which is a nice. And r- right now, yeah, like I said, it's in a good place. We have some plans for the future. We want to release Hex 1.0, uh, which is not that of a big deal. It's just means that it's really no changes for the user. It just means that Hex is stable now. And with that, we want to do a few changes. So for example, one of the one of the changes is make it easier for the maintainers, which is dropping support for the, the earlier Elixir versions. Hex 1.0 will have support for Elixir 1.0 like we do today. But the next Hex version, we start dropping support from earlier Elixir uh, versions. And that's really to make it easier for us to maintain Hakes. There's a lot of nice things in Elixir that we can't use right now. For example, we can't use with, which is a very common tool that we use today, but that we can't use in Hakes. So we want to have a Hakes version that will still be maintained and mostly get security updates, but we will have a Hakes version that we can add more features to and we can use the more powerful features on as well. And apart from that, there's really no big changes that we have planned that users will notice. There's a few minor things, really. Well, big features implementation-wise, but small features for the user. For example, we want to refactor the the version resolution algorithm, which we can maybe, I think we're going to talk about performance a bit more later, which we can talk about more then as well, because it has some performance problems that we want to solve. Yeah, I think I I talked about this a little bit last time I was on. I've been mainly trying to focus on security-related stuff, and I've been discussing with other package, like package manager maintainers, Curtis from RubyGems, Sean from from Crates, try to figure out what the kind of common problems we're all running into and try to come up with, or, or at least take advantage of the time that they've spent trying to find solutions on that. And we have a couple of other cool things coming out. Johanna is actively working on, and Eric and, and Wojtek have been spending a lot of time with her on um, sort of polishing the edges of of the visual diff. And so that's just going to be a pretty cool feature, I think, that people will really notice and hopefully get a lot of use out of. I guess while we're on this Question. I'm curious if like the hex.pm website, especially like once you get into paying for private repositories, is there a roadmap there or is that a separate organization that's sort of working on that? No. So the, it's very much related to each other. So the things we use to run private packages are available for all users. So we have a, we have a repository called hexpm slash specifications. And, and there's nothing private packages uses that are not specified. So we have projects like uh, Wojtek is building right now called uh, mini repo, which is a way of running your own private uh, repository without using the hexpm paid features, which you can use, for example, if you want to self host a, a repository and they use exactly the same APIs and the same specifications that the private packages uses. So those are very much related. And the roadmap for HexPM, HexPM is basically, well, it's the API and the 
website for the main repository of Elixir and Erlang packages. And that's it, basically. And I want to continue a little bit on what uh, Tom was talking about, uh, about security. So security and insight into packages is something that we're always working on. So the diff, the diffing between package versions is uh, a new feature that will, uh, that Johanna has been developing for us, uh, that we hope to be releasing hopefully in the next few weeks. We have always had uh, audit logs. Uh, for everything that happens to a package uh, and type into a user. So for example, when someone published a new package, if they retire a version, something like that, we do an audit log for that. So we always have, so we're always able to go back and look at what has exactly happened to a package. We made that visible uh, and things like that. So that's something that is ongoing uh, all the time. Not really, some of the things become part of the roadmap, but it's, it's, it's really uh, ongoing and something that we look at. Todd, I think you had some questions about hiring and training maybe you want to jump into. Yeah, we don't have to talk about Hex all day. So Eric, you I know you've been busy working on a few different projects the last couple of years, but you spend a bunch of time at a company called Forza, Forza Football or Football Addicts, which I think is based there in Gothenburg. Now you had a, a pretty pretty great team, at least there for a while. So you were there, Andrea from the from the core team was also there, uh, Lexmag, Alexei. I think is or was there as well. Is on the core team, yeah. Yeah, as well as some other people that might might uh, that I might be forgetting. So, how did you? First of all, like, how did you get all those people? Who was first, and who the responsible for hiring? Like that great team that you had, and and maybe when you brought them all in, or when they came in, were they necessarily like the strongest Elixir or Erlang programmers, or was that a result of the training that you guys did at Forza? Yeah. So. Unfortunately, I can't say that I was responsible for hiring uh, most of those people. So I joined after Alexei and Andrea. Um, I was on the core team when I was hired. I don't think Andrea was on the core team, and I'm not sure about Alexei either. But Andrea wasn't on the core team, if I remember correctly. So he joined the core team when he was working at Forza, which is a really good thing, right? So he and Alexei worked a lot together on uh, open source projects, on uh, Elixir itself. So I think that was a really good opportunity to, I'm not sure what to call it, but I guess kind of join that position. So at the time we had three Elixir core members working at Forza, which was really cool. And I think something Forza did really well was that Forza is based in Gothenburg, Sweden. And at the time, they were, I'm pretty sure they were the only, one of the few companies in Sweden using Elixir and probably the only company in Gothenburg using it. So it wasn't easy to hire people that knew Elixir. But one thing that Forza did well was that they looked uh, outside of Sweden. So a lot of the hires at Forza are from the rest of Europe, uh, Eastern Europe, for example, where you find people that ideally know the language, but also are very passionate for functional programming and so on. And by looking at all of Europe, or not necessarily just Europe, Asia and the, uh, and the US as well. The US is a bit hard to hire for, to hire people from the US because salaries are generally higher for developers than in Europe, or at least smaller cities in Europe like Gothenburg. But by looking at uh, Europe and looking at people from Europe and from, from Asia, you have, a much larger pool to hire from. 
and it's much easier to find people, not just someone that is a developer, but actually someone that likes being a developer and, and is passionate and actually want to learn. Because I think for most companies, or at least for many companies, it's hard to find Elixir developers. And instead, you want to hire someone that wants to learn Elixir. Uh, and that is, and you're looking for someone that is uh, easy to train for Elixir. And when you're training someone who's new to Elixir, have you found any tactics that are especially helpful in the training process or you know, aspects of the Elixir language that are you know, the biggest hurdles for people to jump? So it depends on, on what they know before they start in Elixir. But sometimes we have people, we have hired people that don't know functional programming at all. And especially, so I, I do trainings usually at the Elixir Conf conferences, and those trainings are for people new to the language. And, and we need to target those for people that are also new to functional programming. So really what you want to do is start with the fundamentals and really more than teach Elixir, you want to teach functional programming where the important things are you use data structure to model your data. Uh, and after that, you build your functions, you build your functions around that data uh, and you go from there. And then there's a bunch of other things which are easier to teach, like pattern matching, recursion, and stuff like that. But, but really, I think the fundamentals is knowing that functional programming is about the data. And if you have an object-oriented uh, background, it's easy to start trying to think about class design and stuff like that, which is uh, something I struggle with. And actually, when you start from the data structures and you build the uh, implementation around that, it's much easier to think about your problems that way. Can we just talk about, you know, the candidate coming in and they say, here's who you're going to be technically interviewing with today. And it's three members of the Elixir core team and how that goes. I It's either you're either going to be, okay, I'm out of here and pull the grandpa Simpson or, um, or you say, well, this must be the fast track to the core team. And uh, let me not screw this up. <laughs> yeah. So fortunately, I, I don't think we ever had all of us three interview a, a candidate uh, at the same time, which, which was probably a good thing. <laughs> no, I think that's a good thing. I think uh, it'd be very intimidating if someone ever requested, I need to, I need to interview with all three of these guys. You know, kudos, kudos to them. Yeah. So yeah. So the best things were probably when people didn't know. Uh, who we were. And they start talking about other ORM designs and they're like, yeah, yeah exactly. One thing I would change start about talking some library that someone was made. No, but no, but kidding aside, um, I, I, I think so. Uh, talking about the technical interviews, I, I think we tried to keep it pretty relaxed. And, and before, yeah, so before we got into any technical interviews, the candidate had made some kind of a, some kind of a project or, or some kind of code, some kind of code problem that they had sent in. And that's always nice to have because then you have something to talk about. Yeah. And then we just try to go from there. So uh, aside from training these people up, I'm curious uh, on your own journey, you mentioned when you came to the Elixir world was your first time being exposed to functional programming. Can you talk a little bit about your personal journey in terms of learning functional programming? What were the major hurdles for you to leap intellectually and what helped you to understand the major concepts? Yeah, sure. So before Elixir, I had done some functional programming, mostly only for a few years. So I, I had been doing object-oriented programming for 
in various languages before that uh, for a few years. But it was in university I was exposed to functional programming. So uh, the university I went to in Gothenburg called uh, Chalmers is very good in this regard that use uh, a lot of functional programming. And the first course that we had was in functional programming and it was in Haskell. And that was that was a bit of a a bit of a shock for me because when I went into university at that time, I basically thought that, yeah, I, I know programming by now. So university is going to be easy and I'm going to and I'm going to have a nice time. And I had a nice time because I was exposed to functional programming. Uh, but there was a lot of I basically at that point, I didn't really know that uh, different uh, programming paradigms and being exposed to functional programming was obviously a very good thing for me. And and really the 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 hard part was especially with with Haskell was really working with the types because when I started out with Haskell I felt like the types were a roadblock for me, but really as I started using it more I learned that when I had a typing problem like when my code was correct but I had a typing problem it really meant that I didn't really know what my code did. It just worked. And when I saw the types, when I had the type checker uh, working, I really understood the program in a more deeper uh, level. So, so when during that time of your sort of development as a programmer, I'm curious, like what helped you to understand types? Because I think that's definitely something that a lot of people get stuck on. Did you have any aha moments or anything in particular that was like, oh, that's how it works and why it works? Oh, that's a good question. Unfortunately, I don't think there really was an aha moment. It was... It was like a slow grind. <laughs> yeah, it was like all of programming when you learn it, you know, like you churn through it, you do different problems and eventually... Well, it's basically doing more programming, right? As you do more programming, you get it more. It, was it would be really nice if there was like a sheet code, but... If there is, uh, I don't really know it. Well, I think we've uh, talked a little bit about functional programming here, and you know we can always dive back into it. But we, we do have several questions here on performance, and I think that you know we had mentioned earlier in the conversation sort of performance bottlenecks in hex and how you've dealt with those. Do you, do you have any stories or anecdotes or tips or tricks that you learned uh, working on hex? Yeah, sure. So to talk about Hex specifically. So so the main thing with Hex that we try to optimize is when you run a mixed steps get, right? It's when we take the, the dependencies from your mix file, we take, if you have uh, locked dependencies in your lock file, we take that set, of, that set of dependencies and we try to find the dependencies that you want to use. Uh, and that's what we call dependency resolution. And we can get back to that uh, in a bit. So the second thing we do after we resolve your dependencies is to actually fetch them, right? And that's also an, an important uh, piece of the performance. It actually usually takes longer than the than the, uh, the dependency uh, resolution because we have to do network. Well, basically, we have to fetch things uh, over the network. And Elixir is very nice in this regard because it's easy to parallelize uh, those things. And there's other things that we do outside of Elixir that I think is important for developers working on services to think about. And I think the 
most important performance optimizations that we have done in Hex was actually moved from fetching things directly from uh, Amazon S3 and to put a content delivery uh, network in front of it. So right now we use Fastly for that and they are sponsoring us for that. So we are very thankful for Fastly for sponsoring us there and paying for our costs. But that was by far the best performance optimizations that we have done in Hex. And it went from, you know, doing mixed up get with 50 packages took like more than five seconds. And now it's, and now it's one second. That's really the major thing when you run mixed up get it's, it's fetching the packages and optimizing the network was actually more important than optimizing the code. And to talk about the dependency resolution, which is a, an ongoing problem that we have in Hex that sometimes dependency resolution is very slow. And that's because, so basically what we do is that we take your dependencies from your mix file, and then we need to resolve the versions for those dependencies so that we can actually fetch the specific versions that you need. And by doing that, we need to go down to your dependencies and find matching version requirements, uh, versions matching the, the version requirements for those dependencies. And we need to go to, into sub-dependencies uh, and so on. And doing this is a, uh, my computer science is failing me right now. It's NP-hard or NP-complete or something like that, but it's, it's non-polynomial and basically it's very slow to do it. During the dependency resolution, we do a bunch of shortcuts so that we quicker can find the set of versions that you want. Uh, and usually that is the latest version of every package that matches your requirements. Unfortunately, sometimes those shortcuts fail. And especially when there is no successful outcome from the dependency resolution, all those shortcuts kind of fail and we need to test everything basically. That are times when it can be very slow and so slow that it actually never completes, which is obviously a bad user experience. So that's something that we are, we, we haven't found a solution for yet, unfortunately. We have some ideas of how to improve it. So basically, right now it's a, basically the algorithm right now was built during an afternoon, like five years ago, and has been patched since then to be more performant for specific use cases. So it's not that nice today. So, so basically what we want to do is we want to rewrite it from scratch. And there are some documented version resolution uh, algorithms. There is one called PubGrub or something like that, that the Dart package manager uses, which is kind of a specification on how version resolution should work which we're gonna try out. So yeah, so I, I, I don't have a good answer for that yet, but hopefully sometime in the future, we will have a good solution. I think my background in this is that there are, there are always compromises. Every package manager, every resolver has some compromise or some place where it falls down. So NPM would be an example I'd point to that would probably always resolve. There's no reason it shouldn't resolve because um, NPM's comfortable bringing in multiple sub-dependencies that will be different versions. So those those will never have conflicts. Rebar 3 is similar, but also different. It uses like something closer to Maven-style resolution, which is more optimistic, which is to say that these two sub-dependencies are not compatible. And so where Hex would say would never resolve, Rebar is more optimistic to say, we'll assume this newer version will work for both. And so we'll just stick with that. And it may lead to 
weird behaviors in your system. And that's the compromise that they make there. And so um, there's no one right answer for everything. So I would say it's very, it is very complicated. And if you happen to get the wrong combination of dependencies that have subdependencies that are defined or subdependencies that um, maybe don't use Semver correctly, you could uh, you could have yourself a very bad day. But I'm not sure that will ever be a hundred percent fixed in any package manager. So one thing I'm curious about. Uh, so you're also a, a co-author of Mint. So was Mint spawned out of a, a desire to make the network performance like better for Hex? Like, is that that kind of how it started up? Yeah, for sure. So Mint came from three different things. I would say made us start building Mint. So for me personally, one thing was that I wanted an HTTP client that I could use in Hex that supported uh, HTTP2. And one of the constraints we have when we build the Hex client, so the command line interface that you install when you run mixlocal.hex. So one of the constraints there is that we cannot use dependencies because Hex runs in the context of the Mix project. And inside the Mix project, you have your own applications dependencies loaded. So if Hex had dependencies, those would conflict with the dependencies in your own project. So I needed a Hex client that I could vendor in Hex. So basically that means copy the source code into Hex, rewrite the module names, and it just works. Unfortunately, that doesn't work for most, yeah, for most HTTP clients in the ecosystem right now because they have other conflicted things than the module names. For example, you need to start an application, there are in processes and so on. There are ETS tables that are named that would conflict. And so one of the design goals of Mint was to not have a defined process or architecture. So Mint, the library Mint doesn't start any processes. It doesn't start any ETS table. It doesn't need a supervision tree or anything like that. So it's the user of Mint that decides on what kind of pooling you want, what kind of processes that you want to spawn. The third reason was that at the time, we didn't know if the built-in HTTP client in OTP was going to be continued or be kept supported, the client called uh, HTTPC. So that was another reason we wanted to kind of explore Mint and see if maybe, because if that was the case, we needed Mix itself need an HTTP client. So if there isn't an HTTP client in OTP, then Elixir needs one. And then it turned out that OTP is, it looks like they're going to be continuing to support HTTPC. So Mint will not be added to Elixir instead. But it turned out well in the end because it's really good as a standalone library as well. Eric, I want to give you time to plug any of your projects or companies or anything that you're working on. But before I do, I want to ask Todd, do you have any final questions that you want to uh, slide in here? Uh, No, I'm good. Okay. We like to give folks at the end of the episode time for plugs, asks for the audience, if you want to, want to tell people where to find you online, your social media, how to get involved and support your projects. Uh, this is your time to shamelessly self-promote in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. So you can find me, as I said earlier in the episode, you can find me on Slack and IRC. I'm also on Twitter, EMJ. II. And I would love for you to try out Mint, try it out in your project, see how it works compared to other HTTP clients. 
and we are always appreciative of any help on the on the Hex project, all of those repositories. So github.com slash HexPM, you can find the Hex client, the HexPM website, all those related things. So please go check that out. And if you think you can help with anything, that's always very appreciated. Thank you so much, Eric. Eric Meadows Johnson, everybody, joined us all the way from Sweden, several hours ahead in the day. It's like 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night for you over there. Yeah. Yeah, it's late. Eric Meadows Johnson, tirelessly working for the Elixir community. Thank you so much for joining us. Todd Rezadek, thank you for co-hosting this episode of Elixir Wizards. Thank you for having me, Justice. You are a, a joy to have on the show. And of course, my beloved co-host, Eric Ostrich. And I am Justice Epen. This has been an episode of Elixir Wizards. With your friends here at Smart Logic, don't forget to hit subscribe and join us next time for more conversation on working with Elixir. <laughs>